gospel for the 14th Sunday after Pentecost comes out of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now all of the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. Folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. I wonder what image or what thought comes to mind when I say a black hole. If you're anything like me, you consider that a black hole is this thing out in the cosmos of the universe, out there somewhere in space that we believe to be the result of a supermassive star that collapsed in on itself, creating a gravitational force that is so strong that nothing can escape, not even light. And we can only really theorize about what's in it because since not even light can get out, we can't observe what's in there. And it's dangerous and it's destructive because of these massive gravitational forces. But fortunately for us, it's so far out there in the cosmos, in the vastness of the universe, that it doesn't actually have any effect on us. And that's really good because it sounds like it probably would not go well for us if there was one in close proximity. Is that what you think of? I mean, that's what I think of when I think of a black hole. But what if I told you that you come into close proximity with a black hole every single time you get into your car. You may not believe me at first, but it's true. Think about it. Have you ever sat down into the driver's seat of your car and accidentally dropped something that you were holding? Maybe it was your keys, or maybe it was your cell phone, or maybe it was a pen that you were using, or like a coin or something, and it falls down in that crack that lies between the driver's seat and the center console. You've done it, haven't you? I bet you have. And if you have, then you know it's true. That's a black hole, because whatever falls down in there, you're not getting it back. You're going to have to somehow like squeeze your hand down into this weird little crevice and get it down in there. And maybe if you're lucky, get a hold of it. Or more likely, you're going to have to climb down in front of the seat, probably with a flashlight, to shine it under there and then squeeze around and maybe use a hook or something. Or maybe you can get your hand down in there. And somehow, with a lot of effort, well, you're going to have to work some overtime to get it to try and bring back that which has been lost down in that crevice. It's a black hole. Okay, that's probably weird to think about. But just think about the effort that it takes to pull back that which you've lost down there. Put that in the back of your minds, and let's consider this passage that we have today. Now, Jesus has been spending a lot of time with a lot of people. If you've caught any of our recent 
messages in, in recent weeks, you know Jesus is in the midst of traveling towards Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen when he gets there, but he's attracting large crowds. There's large crowds that are gathered around him. They've, they've, they've heard him preach. They've heard him teach. They've seen his miracles. They want to get close to him. Some people really like him. Some really don't, but it doesn't really matter. Jesus doesn't seem to discriminate. He spends time with all kinds of different people, and it seems to cross the gambit of people that he will spend time with. Now, again, in recent weeks, he's been talking a lot about using the metaphors of meals. And if you're going to go to a meal, here's how you should act. And if you're going to throw a, a, a meal or have a banquet or host the banquet, here's what you should do. And who, here's who you should invite. And all of this different stuff is going on. And then Jesus is actually modeling all of this different stuff as he spends time with all kinds of different people, oftentimes in the context of eating. Now, in this particular instance, he's been attracting people who might be considered less than desirable by the fancy people in society. We hear he's attracting tax collectors and sinners, and he welcomes them, and he eats with them. Now, tax collectors, maybe for us that seems a little bit strange, but in Jesus' time, in the Jewish culture, the tax collectors were considered traitors because they have aligned themselves with the Roman Empire and are actually taking advantage of their fellow countrymen, their fellow, their fellow Jewish people. So they're considered to be traitors. And sinners, well, they're the ones who don't live up to the standards. They don't follow the rules. Their lifestyle doesn't match what everybody thinks is acceptable. And because of this, Jesus is now guilty by association with the people who matter. We hear that these uppity-ups, these religious elites, these people who are experts in the law and how you're supposed to live, they're grumbling and they're complaining. They might as well be like, can you believe what this guy is doing and who he is sitting with? Doesn't he know who they are? What is he thinking? They're murmuring, they're grumbling, they're complaining because of the people that Jesus chooses to spend time with. In response to this, Jesus seems to know what's going on. Maybe he can hear them, maybe he can't, maybe he just knows what's in their heart, I don't know. But either way, he seems to be aware. And so he tells them these two parables, and there's actually a third parable that goes along with it as well that we have not featured here today. But these three parables, we hear about the lost sheep, we hear about the lost coin, and then we've got the one that's commonly known as the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, although I think it's better to call it a father who goes looking for his two sons. We have these three different instances, and in particular, these two. Now, Jesus starts referencing, as he often does, something that's familiar to the people, familiar to his culture, familiar to the people who will be hearing him. And he starts initially talking about sheep. Now, we do have sheep around this area. I myself, even though I'm a farm kid, I haven't had a ton of interaction with, with sheep. We didn't have them on the farm that I grew up on, but I've interacted with them a little bit. And perhaps you might be familiar with the fact that I'm not a real big fan of sheep. I don't think they're an overly smart animal. I think they're kind of dumb, and they're kind of a pain to work with. They're foolish, they do dumb stuff, and they're just not good animals. But that doesn't mean that they don't have value, because they do. And that was also the case back in Jesus' day when sheep were very, very, very common. And everyone would have been familiar with them. If they didn't have their own sheep, they at least would have been familiar. And so Jesus starts to take these people who are grumbling, and he turns it back on them. And he says, who from among you, if you have 100 sheep and one is lost, will not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go and seek 
the one, searching high and low, looking everywhere until you find it. And when you find it, the man rejoices and he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he takes it home and he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me for my sheep was lost and now it is found. Then he, he kind of, he flips it on its ear. And he gives the same sort of idea, but with a wholly different context. Or what woman, having 10 coins and one of them is lost, will not light a lamp and search diligently, search tirelessly, that's a hard word to say, will search high and low, turning over every possible thing, looking in every crack and every crevice, looking underneath and over top and around behind until she finds the coin that was lost. And when she does, she rejoices and she calls together her friends and her neighbors and she says, rejoice with me for that which was lost has been found. And then Jesus says, I tell you, there is celebration in heaven over one that is lost than the 99 righteous that had no need of repentance. And then he says, there is great joy and celebration in heaven over one that is lost that has been found. Now, these are two fairly well-known, recognizable parables. And maybe as I say them, your brain goes in a lot of different directions. And there are many, many things that we could unpack or consider when we think about these parables. One of them is perhaps to consider the idea of being lost. I think this is something, especially in the church, that we all tend to think about. Now, when we think about ourselves, when we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we're broken people, that we're not perfect, that we make mistakes and that we cause harm and that we cause hurt and we break the relationships and we think about the idea of being lost. And so perhaps we begin to compare ourselves with either that lost coin or with the lost sheep or if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son with the lost son who has gone off and is coming back to repent and to seek forgiveness from his father. All of these ideas are perhaps fitting for us to consider I was lost, but now I'm found, if you're familiar with that, that well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. But if that's the case, and we consider ourselves to be the thing that is lost, then perhaps we need to look at the one who is doing the finding, the one who is working so hard, that is searching and seeking, who is putting in the overtime to find that which is lost, to putting in the massive amount of effort. I think about a video that's been making the rounds the last couple of years. Perhaps you've seen it. The video opens, and we can see in the ground there's this long but skinny crack. It's, I don't know, a foot and a half or so wide. And there's a guy, and he's reaching down into this crack, and it's dark down there, and you can't see what's in there. And he, he seemingly gets a hold of something, and it's sort of yanking his arm around a little bit, so whatever is in there is kind of fighting him. But he's, he's pulling it up, and he pulls it up, and he pulls a sheep out of this crack in the ground, this sheep that has somehow fallen in there and gotten stuck. And he had to put forth the effort to find that sheep and to save it, to bring it back out. And the sheep, once it's free, once it's so happy and joyful to be free that it starts bouncing around and promptly falls right back in the crack again. And I can only imagine what we don't see in that video is that same farmer, that same guy, probably doing a face palm as he says, that thing is so dumb, I found it. I put forth the effort to bring it out and then it puts itself right back in there again. And we have a lot to learn from that too because I think we have the tendency to put ourselves in the state of being lost 
over and over and over again. And maybe, just maybe, if we consider that it is God that is looking for us, God maybe face palms as we do the same thing over and over and over again. But if we move away from the sheep and we think about the coin, well, a coin doesn't search for itself or it doesn't place itself. It just gets lost. Maybe what it doesn't really matter what metaphor we're using. Maybe it's simply more important to focus in, to zero in on the idea of the one who searches diligently. And when that which has been lost is found, there is joy, there is rejoicing, there is a gathering of friends and neighbors to have a celebration. Let us celebrate. If that is the gospel, if this is the basis for the gospel or the good news, that we are lost, that every single one of us who God calls good but broken is lost, God has sought us out, God seeks, and God has found us, and that is somehow made possible through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't understand how it works, but I am grateful that it does because that means that God has looked for me and has found me and has promised to not leave me in that which hinders me and leaves me broken and lost out wandering in the wilderness somewhere. And I also believe that this is true for everyone. But what's interesting about this whole thing is if we dig just a little bit deeper and we remember that there's some other characters in this story, there's even some other characters within this initial parable. The one who will seek leaves the 99 in the wilderness to go in search of the one. And what can we take from that? What can we learn from that, especially when we consider that Jesus is telling this story in response to some who are grumbling because he is spending time in, in celebration with sinful people. What do we learn from the 99? Did the 99 join in the celebration? Perhaps that's the real question, and we don't know. We don't know if the Pharisees and the scribes ever came around and joined in the celebration along with Jesus and the others. We don't know. But when we really stop and think about it, I think perhaps we begin to see a little bit of a critique in what we have seen within the church over the millennia. If we look at our history and we're actually honest about it, I think throughout the ages, right up to now, the church and we as individuals within it have continuously drawn lines for who is in and who is out, who is acceptable and who isn't, who receives the gospel and who doesn't. And what Jesus is telling us here is that it's not about the righteous. It's not about the ones who are following the rules. They are doing okay, so they are left here to go and search the one who is lost. And when the one that is lost is found, we must all celebrate. I think that's at the heart of what's going on here. That God will go searching for the one. And perhaps that's what we too, as the church, are instructed to do. To go searching for the one that has been lost. And to celebrate when they come together. It seems to me that Jesus is showing us, telling us, reminding us 
of the inherent joy that is found when the, the family all gets together. Think about it. The flock is a hundred. And the man does not rest until they are all brought back together and everyone is accounted for. And when everyone is accounted for, that's when the celebration happens. And for us, the gospel says that this has already been overcome. God has worked overtime, putting forth the effort somehow through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to overcome that which makes every single one of us lost. And that is worth celebrating. But when we really consider the extreme truth of the gospel, perhaps we begin to see some of those edges that we bump up against that make us murmur or that make us grumble. So I ask you this question, who are those that maybe you look at and deem as unacceptable? Whether you buy into this whole faith thing or not, who are those that you think they're not good enough and what they get, they deserve it? We all have them. We all have those people, those individuals, that type of thing, because we're all capable of judgment. But the thing about the gospel that I hold on to, this is a story I tell myself a lot, that one day I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm going to look around, and there's going to be somebody there, and I'm going to be like, you're here? And they're going to look right back at me, and they're going to say the exact same thing. You made it? The gospel is offensive in that, but it also reveals the truth in what we say when God so loved the world And it also reveals the truth of nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not our judgment and not whatever places us in the position of being lost, which oftentimes is that very judgment. Jesus has somehow overcome all of this. I don't know how it works. It's above my pay grade, but I believe it to be true and I find great hope in it because that means that it's for me and it's also for you and I believe it is for all of us. And as the flock comes back together, whether it's in this life or in the age to come, I believe that is worth celebrating. Let us celebrate. Amen.